Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So I've been getting a lot of emails from people asking me how I like being on at 3 o'clock. And everything you do, whenever you change anything, it's a huge adjustment. Because you get into patterns. It doesn't take long to create a habit or a pat. Well, I guess it does take a while. Because um, I was at noon for years. So my life was partitioned into the morning and then the post-afternoon. And now I have like this whole morning into the afternoon. And then I have to be available suddenly in the late afternoon, which is not something that I ever had to do before. So it's been an adjustment, but I must admit, in a way, I really like it, especially when Dan Bongino is on fire the way he was today. He's generally on fire, but he was really just uh, smoking. I, I have to actually turn him off because otherwise I just want to repeat everything you know that he said. And, you know, that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't work for me. I got to be original. And it's, you know, I, I was thinking about what kind of thought processes people like him and people like me have, because you know that it, let's pretend that we're all driving a car. You may actually be driving a car listening to me, right? And we're going somewhere and we know that if we take this shortcut, we could save not just time, but we could save gas and gas prices are up, which is a huge win, especially if the shortcut is applied to something, you know, that you do daily, going to work or going to uh, your, I don't know, visit your mom. However, what about the shortcuts that we take when we're thinking? Mental shortcuts are very natural for me. It saves time, it saves energy, but I have to be careful because mental shortcuts can get me into trouble. I know that sometimes quick thinking is really important, especially on the air, and especially with only an hour, right? I have got to think quick, and other people aren't moving at that same speed or that same pace. So I was thinking about meta-thoughts, which are the thoughts that you have about your thoughts. If it gets too deep for you, I get it. But if you're an effective, critical thinker, which is what I hope I am, I think the human mind is the most incredible tool that we have at our disposal. And the degree to which we use our mind impacts every aspect of our life. It's safe to say that the most successful and impactful humans on the planet have learned to utilize their minds at incredible levels. And you think of people like Elon Musk, you think of you know, people like Dan Bongino. I find that they are good critical thinkers. First and foremost, they 
have a tendency to maintain a belief, even in the face of all kinds of contradictory information. It's kind of like a default, and I know I have it too. I've always believed this, so therefore it's correct. And it shuts you down. It closes your mind off from possibilities and opportunities. Like what if the opposite of what I think is actually true? I also, and I hear it in other people, especially uh, Bongino, who I guess I'm studying more intensely than ever before, is that we believe in cause, probable cause. We like to think about the causation and the correlation of things and therefore we assign certain outcomes to things. And is that, you know, is that a good idea? I'm not sure. Just because one thing happens and then another, that doesn't mean that the first thing caused the second. I'm just thinking out loud and I'm sharing it with you because I think it's important. I think you need to exercise some good critical thinking skills when you have as much going on in the world as we do now. You have to be able to organize and categorize your ideas. You have to analyze and evaluate information because not all the information coming at us, whether it's coming at us from a trusted source or coming at us from you know the universe, not all of it is valid. And some is more valid than others. And you need to find the connections and the causations and the correlations based on the data. So... I'm just trying to help people dig deep when they hear different opinions. Remember, what you're listening to today, right now, is Joyce Kaufman's thoughts. It's based on the information that I have input into my brain. Just as when you listen to uh, Bongino or you listen to Eric Erickson or you listen to Brian Kilmeade or you listen to Jen and Bill, they have access to the same information I have. They process it differently and they probably don't have the same opinion. You know, sometimes I listen to Jen and Bill and I go, where did they get that idea? From the same news story that I'm looking at. Same thing happens with Brian Kilmeade. He depends heavily on guests and callers, I notice, because there's so much information. He has access to so much information and he's doing so many hours three hours on television in the morning, three hours on the radio right after that, another hour or two, he shows up on other people's shows. You know, It's like constant trying to come up with your own spin on the same story that everybody's looking at. I sort of envy the fact that he is as nimble as he is. Somebody said to me yesterday that they really enjoy Jesse Waters and that they hope that he gets a bigger viewership because apparently they're all struggling on Fox. And I thought about that. Like, do I give Jesse Waters a fair chance? I think I did. I think I remember enjoying him very much when he was on with Bill O'Reilly and he'd do those little man on the street segments and somehow, and this is my world, started annoying me. Like, that's what I'm talking about. This is my world. This is the Joyce Kaufman world. But I don't need to tell you that. You know that. You've been listening to me probably long enough to know me better than you know your spouse. Because people hold back 
I don't hold back, right? So you know, you know what I'm saying. People anticipate and predict. I like to be a little unpredictable, but it's very difficult. Like today, I look at this story and nobody is talking about this. And probably because Ben Shapiro's not on the air, nobody is going to talk about this. And I think it's a huge story. It's an important story to me. But people think they know how I'm going to present this story. And in this case, you're probably right. Israel and Saudi Arabia have quietly, for the last couple of years, begun to expand their interaction. That means they're trading with one another. Commerce is a big part of how countries get along. And it also means that they're probably sharing intelligence. You got to think about that for a moment. Prime Minister Netanyahu says normalization would effectively end the Arab-Israeli conflict. I had to think about that. So MBS, who is the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, they call him MBS, says that there's not going to be peace until the Palestinians get their own state with East Jerusalem as their capital. At least that's what he says. And of course, Bibi Netanyahu says that's never going to happen. Nope. So a lot of people are starting to try to figure out, are the Saudis serious about statehood for Palestine and whatever they call themselves, those people? And are they unwilling to sacrifice their own interests for the PLO? I don't think so. A lot of the moderate Arab leaders out there who are making peace with Israel, they're tired of the Palestinians. They're tired of, of this demand, this un-inflexible demand that they hear all the time. We have to be a state. We are a people. For instance, the Israeli foreign minister, Eli Cohen, he recently told a Saudi newspaper, the Palestinian issue will not be an obstacle to peace with Saudi Arabia. What would the Palestinians get? You know, how do they go about this? How do they improve the Palestinian economy? Because Bibi Netanyahu is not going to give the Saudis or the Americans what they want, Palestinian statehood, because the, the very existence of his country depends on not doing that. He's made a deal with the United Arab Emirates. He's put some limitations on settlements and he's given much more money and mobility to the people living there. But Netanyahu and MBS have an American problem. They need the United States to broker the deal and to pay for it. But they don't want Joe Biden in the mix. First and foremost, he, dis he dissed them both. Didn't invite them to the White House? Neither one of them. Not the, not the Prime Minister of Israel, our ally, and not the leader of Saudi Arabia. So they don't want Joe Biden. Actually, if ever there was two countries who wish they could influence an election, it's those two. If you can't get a White House invitation out of this administration, and by the way, uh, Biden said recently that he'll see Netanyahu later this year, but he didn't say where. So in other words, he's not going to invite him into the White House. 
Was it going to meet him in the, you know, the the UN? Because we know they'll both be at the UN at some point next year, or maybe even sooner. And Joe Biden, the president, has made normalization of Israel and Saudi relations a very big priority for him. He wants the bragging rights, especially among the friends of Israel who thinks he's been too tough on Netanyahu. So you got, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, and nobody's talking about it. The Saudis, you know, the price is going to be high to get the Saudis to be at peace. First and foremost, they want like a NATO-type security treaty, complete with the Article 5 mutual defense guarantees. <laughs> you, you think Joe Biden's going to do that? I don't think so. I don't think Anthony, Anthony Blinken is going to do that. These people don't know what they're doing. They walked away from the Abraham Accords. They simply don't know how to do this. So it amazes me that as much has happened to move that Saudi Arabia-Israeli peace forward. Who's working behind the scenes? It's certainly not this administration. So I'm interested in that story, and I don't understand why it's not an interest to other talk show hosts. I know they're focused on uh, January 6th and indictments and Atlanta and this and that, but that's kind of the shiny thing. Things are happening all over the world that we need to be paying attention to and we need a president who can handle them. Now, I know a lot of you are mad at Donald Trump. I get it. But did we have any of these issues while he was president? Were you worried about North Korea? Did you think Russia was going to invade Ukraine? Of course not. We knew that China was going to have to stay slippery, slimy, undercover. Now they're out in the bold, out in the open. And I don't think there's anybody left in America who doesn't think they have something on Biden. There's a committee in Congress right now proving that $20 million changed hands and Joe Biden got some of it. If that were Donald Trump, how do you think that story would have ended? He would have been impeached for real. Not these fake, phony impeachments they did with no basis. Oh, a phone call. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tumultuous time, but we can't take our eyes off what's happening in the Middle East. Nobody talks about Syria anymore. Nobody talks about Turkey. Nobody talks about the migrant problem in Europe, in Western Europe. These are big issues. These issues cause big actions. And we're not prepared for any kind of action. I don't care what anybody tries to tell you. The United States military is demoralized, underfunded. They're paying too much attention to all this uh, diversity, whatever, all this uh, gendered nonsense. It's supposed to be a fighting force, not a, a, a social experiment. But then, listen, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, use your own beautiful, creative, talented mind to think. Think, spot the errors in other people's thinking in this administration. Spot, see things from multiple points of view and, and then try to think of some solutions. We don't talk about the solutions ever. Let me take a quick break. Don't forget to download the app, the 850 WFTL app, or to visit our website, 850WFTL.com. 
You can participate in the contest. You can listen to the podcast. And you just become a devoted fan. How's that for a thing? I'll be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So my guest is my my good friend and someone who I have tremendous respect for. He's very apolitical, but boy, he knows his numbers. Dr. Stephen Camerata from the Center for Immigration Studies. This report about public schools in Florida has my hair on fire. Right. So what we were looking at is just the massive growth of immigration and its impact on public schools. A lot of times we talk about these questions abstractly. But one of the places where immigration has its most profound and important impact is on public services, including public schools. So what we've seen, um, so nationally, uh, immigrants were something like 10 percent of kids in public schools were from immigrant families, say, back in 1990. But today it's almost a fourth. So and in states like Florida, well, the growth has been even more profound. But what we did here is we looked at it at the local level and we mapped it. So then you've got all kinds of areas in a state like Florida, like Hialeah, where, you know, 80 percent plus of the kids um, come from immigrant backgrounds. So the impact nationally is big, but the impact on local communities in a place like Florida uh, is just truly enormous. And it raises all kinds of profound questions about um, you know, can we, you know, is the level of immigration so high, particularly at the local level, that it can overwhelm the assimilation process? Oh, there, there's no question in my mind. Math and reading scores among America's 13-year-olds fell to their lowest levels in decades. And look, this is not me um, slamming immigration, which I can do very well, but this is me saying when you bring in children who do not speak the language, there's no way you can get an accurate test score as to what the, the native kids are, are doing in school. Not that I don't believe COVID affected every child who was going to school, but you know, the, how is this ignored? You're talking about pockets in Florida, because I read the study, where there's 31% of the student body is from an immigrant-run household. Right. That's the, that's the number nationally, I mean, uh, for the state as a whole. And of course, as you point out, in many areas of Florida, it's just, it's incredible. If you, mm -hmm. if your listeners want to go, they can go look at the map and click on each of these areas. We, we drill down using these public use micro areas from the Census Bureau, and you find lots of places in Florida where more than half of the kids are from immigrant backgrounds. More than half of the kids speak a foreign language at home. So the impact there is, is truly enormous. Yeah. And and I guess for, you know, for the average parent or grandparent at this point, I'm the grandparent. Um, we look at how compromised the schools have been anyway prior to this flooding in of as many people as uh, the, this particular administration can tolerate. And um, we look at the diminishing scores. We see how the kids are doing across the board. And, you know, we don't want this to go on much longer. 
uh, ESOL was supposed to be sort of a, a small program that was entered into schools. It's now like the main thing in every school, English for speakers of other languages. I think that that also what happens is that uh, a much larger fraction of immigrant kids come from low-income backgrounds, and immigrants have, you know, on average, lower income. So what that means is that in general, in the areas they settle, you have both the challenge associated with educating kids from a foreign background, and, and it's particularly language, and at the same time, you get this big increase in enrollment without a corresponding increase in taxes, because the immigrants have significantly higher poverty rates, lower average income. So not only do you have somewhat higher cost per student and big increases in enrollment, but then you don't get a corresponding increase in taxes. doesn't mean immigrants don't pay any taxes. It just means that um, in this case, you know, there's no way that, that these areas are going to get an influx of taxes that aligns with the, um, the increase in costs that they have. So, yeah. so that is one of the big challenges. And that's aside from questions of assimilation. And as you say, I mean, COVID wrecked the American education system. Predictably, right. everyone said it was going to happen, and now we're seeing it in the test scores. And um, immigration certainly increases the challenges. Now, one thing about these data is that it's only through 2021. It does not reflect the Biden border surge. Remember, when mm. President Biden took office, there were about 45 million immigrants in the United States. Probably by now, based on the monthly data, we don't have a complete picture, but that number is likely 49 million. So wow. in just two years and a few months, it's grown by 4 million. And that still takes into account normal mortality, you know, the people who die every year, the people who go home. So we are seeing growth in the immigrant population. At least half of that is from new illegal immigration. That's really unprecedented. And one of the areas where it's going to impact the most is our schools, which are already struggling, both right. with trying to deal with the influx that's already occurred and just and the added problems created by COVID. 87% of the children in North Dade, meaning Hialeah, that area, come from in immigrant households where English is a second language. It's almost unbelievable to me. Um, how can you possibly assimilate if everybody is not, right. you know, right. not, no, that, that's not native? Great point, Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the way, one of the ways assimilation works is that the kids from, uh, you know, U.S.-born parents kind of predominate and the acculturation is kind of a natural process because the immigrants make up a modest share of the population. But that's not what we're seeing. Um, and it does raise important questions about the uh, the average immigrant in, in Florida and um, the average immigrant nationally, it's, it's similar numbers, lives in an area that is at least 40 percent uh, also mm. foreign language speakers. So they most, uh, you know, and this has, you know, again, enormous implications for their ability just to gain the foreign language. One language usually predominates in an area as well, though that's not always true. There are hundreds of these local areas where 10 or more languages are spoken in the school, which means that they have to take translators, the teachers have to be trained, and so forth. So that creates another set of challenges, though it's normally one big language, usually Spanish, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, you know, fair questions. And I guess the biggest issue for me is when people say, look, we need to take in more refugees, we need to take in more asylees, or gosh, we need more workers, it's always thought about as in isolation, either the, the, the interests of the person who wants to come or the interests of a particular business predominates. 
But the broad national interest, including the impact on public schools, just isn't thought of. I mean, if you say you want to bring in more people or allow more people in, or what the, uh, what the uh, Biden administration is just doing is effectively releasing more people into the country, we could discuss the legality of that, but we'll put that aside, but without any consideration to the broad impact on American society. Sure, there's an employer who wants it. Sure, the individual immigrant wants it. And those things matter, and we should think about that. But the impact on public services and schools and just our ability to absorb and assimilate and integrate, no one ever thinks about that. It just doesn't come up. We're headed into uncharted territory when it comes to the immigrant share of the U.S. population. Never been here before. And it's hardly ever discussed. Yeah. And the way they do it is what's so, you know, disturbing to me. Now, you know, that they're saying that they need to bring in these laborers and they're not going to count the ones who have already been here and invited back. Instead, they're going to bring in another crop. And it's just, you know, they just make up these crazy uh, rules. And then we're stuck as the parents and grandparents watching the schools get overcrowded, watching uh, in some instances, taxes uh, up because you, your property taxes what pays for this. And uh, it's just, it's such a formula for disaster. It makes me crazy that there's so few of us who are willing to discuss it. But thank goodness for the Center for Immigration Studies and for you, Dr. Camerata. I always appreciate you making sense of those numbers for us. Thanks so much. Anyway, stay right where you are. I'll be right back. So uh, it's really kind of crazy. Uh, uh, I s- told the story the other day that I went to the physician and he asked me how I was doing. And I said, well, you know, I was told when I had my motorcycle accident that it would exacerbate arthritis, which of course is something that my entire family lived with. And and I think a lot of people have arthritis and that's come to pass. I now have some joint issues and it can be very painful by the end of the day, right? So I told my doctor that. And he said, well, I'm going to send you to a pain management center. And I said, well, I don't know what that means, but I don't, you know, I don't use narcotics. I'm not taking any narcotics. And he said, well, would you be adverse to a medical marijuana card? And I'm like, what? I mean, primary physicians are now in the business of recommending that you start using medical marijuana. I was pretty stunned, but you know, it is what's going on. And at least I'm privy to all that. But there was a tremendous article. I probably will do a an entire uh, No Restraint podcast on this because I think it's so important. It was, I think it was called, oh gosh, I got to remember. I have it here somewhere. Um, America the Stoned. And, you know, I had no idea how many states have actually legalized weed for recreational use. And I'm looking at these numbers, an estimated 13 and a half million Americans use marijuana every day. And I don't know, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Because I don't think it's a good idea. You can have this version of marijuana is nothing like what we saw in the 60s the kind of marijuana that people are smoking now, including eating the medical marijuana that they do edibles, is way stronger than anything we ever did. 
And I'm not saying that because I've had the experience, but I'm reading these articles and I'm looking at like how many people who are smoking a lot of marijuana are getting diagnosed with all kinds of mental illnesses, bipolar disorder. I don't know if there's a link, but maybe we ought to think about that. A study in Norway in the Lancet Psychiatry last month followed patients without serious mental health conditions and found that those who'd experienced weed-induced psychosis were at a significant risk of being diagnosed with schizophrenia later. Other drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, and alcohol were included in the study, but cannabis had the highest rate of schizophrenia, with 27% of users developing the chronic brain disorder within six years. Now, you know, when we were growing up, there was a movie called Reefer Madness. Oh, the terrible effects that could happen to somebody who smokes marijuana. Well, weed isn't just legal now. It's normalized. Everyone from Olympic gold medalists to celebrities are openly endorsing it. Even a former Speaker of the House is openly endorsing marijuana. Kamala Harris herself, the vice president, said uh, back in, I don't know when, well, she was still a senator, so it must have been like 2019. I don't even know if she was running yet. She insists that marijuana gives a lot of people joy and we need more joy. Wow. You know, so does vodka. Do we need more vodka? I, I don't know. Edible cannabis can now be found in everything. Sriracha, olive oil, bath salts, and this one kind of blew me away, in tampons. So the whole idea that back in 1990, when Bill Clinton said, I, I, I smoked it once, but, but I didn't inhale. Back then, only 25% of Americans believed that weed for any reason should be legal, okay? It's 30 years later, and now 88% of the country thinks that cannabis should be legal, not just for medical, but for recreational use. They just, uh, in, in May, Minnesota became the 23rd state to legalize recreational marijuana. First ones were, of course, Colorado and Washington, back in 2012, and then Pennsylvania, Ohio, and they're predicting that Florida could follow this year. Weed is part of every backyard barbecue and book club. Wow, I'm definitely traveling in the wrong circles. That's all I know. Anybody who lives in a state where recreational marijuana has been legalized can tell you you can smell it everywhere. When I went to New York the last time, it wasn't just passing people's houses with an open window, but I walked into playgrounds where you could smell it. I, um, I got into an Uber and the driver was smoking it. <laughs> you could smell it in the corridors of a hospital. The stench of cannabis is so pervasive on the city streets that even the mayor, Eric Adams, complained last summer that the number one thing I smell right now is pot. Times Square has signs that read like a teacher 
using youth slang to get with the kids. Let's be blunt. No smoking in the plazas. What? So you now have more daily uses of marijuana than daily uses of alcohol. It's estimated that 52.5 million Americans have used some THC product over the past year. That's more than double 20 years ago. And I told you earlier, 13.5 million use it every day. Young, more young people than ever. 43% of young adults between the ages of 19 and 30 have smoked pot compared to, I, I don't know, it was like uh, 20% or 29% 10 years ago. And everybody just acts like, well, weed is just another over-the-counter drug and, you know, we got to worry about things like opioids instead. And, and we do. But according to an American Psychiatric Association survey, just 38% of people think marijuana is unsafe compared to 84% for cigarettes, 64% for alcohol, and 75% for opioids. And forget it when it comes to teens. They don't think it's a problem. What you don't realize is that today's pot is very, it's a very different type of plant than what the uh, parents of these teenagers were smoking back in the 60s. It's far more potent. It has 20% THC. When we were growing up, pot had about 3%, maybe 5% in the 80s it went up. So the increase in the potency is why the cannabis user today smokes more often. Don't tell me that it's not addictive. And the reason it became so potent is the economics, right? Legal weed is expected to generate $100 billion in sales this year in this country. And THC potency and the price point are the two biggest factors in why customers, you know, pick their brands. <laughs> they pick their brands. They have, it's like, if you don't like Bud Light, drink Miller Light. If you don't like this uh, particular kind of marijuana, then smoke a different kind or eat a different kind. Godfather OG was the winner of the Best Indica Award at the 2013 High Times Cannabis Cup. We got competitions going on. I don't know about the rest of you, but this really concerns me, especially the part about the danger of psychotic breaks. Now, using medical marijuana may be a good idea for certain people with certain disorders, but recreational use of marijuana much like recreational use of alcohol, really doesn't portend well for this country. And it's easy to see why most Americans are able to ignore the news. They're able to ignore what's going on in the schools. They're just uh, stoned. They're doped up. The worst thing that can happen to a country is to have people who can't think straight. Because if you can't think straight, you let anything go on. People who are smoking marijuana daily don't care about Donald Trump, don't care about Joe Biden, don't care about North Korea, don't care about Iran. They just want to know where their next Twinkie is coming from. Just saying. Anyway, let me take a break. I have one more segment left in this show, so 
uh, you don't want to turn it off. Plus, coming up after me is Eric Erickson. Stay right where you are. So there was an article on Free Press. I don't know what I would do without Free Press. I think Barry uh, has done a tremendous service, Barry Weiss, to the community because she brings on these writers who have an incredible capacity for telling the truth. And that it's worth a subscription, by the way. I'm not, you know, shilling for her, but I, I get so much information from there. It's amazing. Uh, her and Melanie Phillips really just tell the stories that nobody else wants to talk about. You know, whether it's Israel with Melanie Phillips or it's uh, the truth about everything on Barry Weiss's. And I don't agree with Barry Weiss on very much. She's a, she's very much a liberal, but she's a truth teller. And right now, if you're a truth teller. You're attacking a lot of liberals because they're liars. Like this, uh, there's an article by David Zweig on Free Press about Anthony Fauci. You know, everybody was thinking that Anthony Fauci was going away into the quiet, which is not true. And what we need to do is look at what his incredible misdeeds were during the onset of this coronavirus plague. There's nothing else you can call it but a plague, a worldwide plague. And back in April of 2020, when most of us were still in some kind of lockdown and all we were reading were headlines about hospitals that had bodies in the morgue, trucks lined up, all this really scary stuff. And it was at the end of a press conference back in April when Anthony Fauci was asked, was there a possibility that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan, China? And he steps up to the microphone and, you know, it's all over the internet if you want to see it. And Fauci said very confidently that there was a study and a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists. Now, remember, back in this day, most of us didn't know what a virologist was, never mind an evolutionary virologist, okay? And he said this group had looked at the sequences there and the sequences in bats, as they evolve and the mutations that it would take to get where it is now is totally consistent with the jump of a species from an animal to a human. In other words, he dispelled any discussion and certainly any confirmation that this virus had been created in a laboratory. And that set the template for everything that we heard for the next three years from Anthony Fauci. And yes, I know it was during the Trump administration, and Trump doesn't get a complete pass on this. We were all freaked out, and he was too. But the evasion, the lying, the misdirection about what was going on and how he was connected to the very high-risk virology research that was going on in Wuhan, very lax security. And Fauci was the face of the public health community for the whole time during the crisis, right? pushing the evidence that oh, strong indications the virus was just a tragic, natural occurrence. Over and over again, he said that an epidemic that started in Wuhan was unlikely to have been the result of an escape from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He had an incentive, and we know that now, because that institute was known for doing very high-risk research, virology research, they were manipulating coronaviruses. And Dr. Fauci, who was the head of the uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for like 40 years, had 
given the money. He was funding the research there. So, of course, when he dismisses the theory of the lab leak and then gets really condescending towards anybody who even wants to talk about it, we got a narrative about how that pandemic started directly from him. And the media totally fell for it. And, and when the Biden White House said, look, you got to said to the social media platforms, Zuckerberg and, you know, Google, all of them, he said, you have to stifle any discussion about the origins of this virus. Ah, but then what happened? A whole bunch of emails and other documents were released by the U.S. House Select Subcommittee, I guess it is, on the coronavirus pandemic. And there's tons of evidence in there that Fauci and some other officials had a tremendous amount of involvement with the scientists and with the journalists, and they quashed the lab leak theory. You had highly qualified authors of the paper that Fauci had asserted in April 2020 likely disproved the lab leak. That was the proximal origin paper. But there was extensive discussion by the officials who were telling us no chance this was a lab leak about how this was a lab leak. So they published one thing, told you and me one thing, and they were thinking something else. Just months before a paper was published in March, one of the paper's authors wrote a Slack message to his colleague saying, the lab escape version of this is so friggin' likely to have happened because they were already doing this type of work and the molecular data is fully consistent with that scenario. Oh, okay. Just what I was saying, just what Alex Berenson was saying, just what Elon Musk was saying, just what so many people were saying, this looks pretty sketchy. This virus looks man-made, or certainly there's a possibility it was man-made, and it could have been released by accident, or it could have been released on purpose. And, and you know, of course, Fauci objected to the paper, he objects to the documents being released, and he and Francis Collins, who was then the head of the NIH, which oversees the NIAID, which is what Fauci headed, they took part in a conference call with a bunch of scientists, including several of the authors that I just cited, prompting them to begin work on what would ultimately be that proximal origin paper, which I have right here in front of me. The virologists were told this is the position we're taking, and, and this is the position everybody took. Advice and leadership as we have been working through the SARS-CoV-2 origins paper. Nice job on the paper. Fauci and Collins were so involved with the paper that internal communications between the five authors they referred to as the Bethesda boys which is a reference to where the headquarters are of NIH. They're in Bethesda, Maryland. At the time of that paper's drafting, which went on from about February through March, when it was accepted by the Journal of Nature Medicine, they had an $8.9 million grant under review by Fauci. Of course, the grant was approved in May. We may never learn how the pandemic began, considering that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is funded by your dollars, your taxpayer dollars, and they've deleted all the data about the virus, and we know that the Chinese Communist Party ain't gonna give it up, but instead of offering even-handed leadership that would have encouraged scientists to present some alternate, you know, some alternative process, you know, could it have been a leak or any other issues? They got demonized. Fauci punished them. 
And if you want to understand why there's been such a collapse of trust in our public health leaders, this is a good place. This story is a good place to understand it. So what, what on earth was actually going on and why were we being lied to? When Senator Rand Paul was questioning Fauci in that congressional hearing about his funding of this research and its connection to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Fauci said, gain of function is a very nebulous term. You're defining away gain of function. That's what you're doing. There is so much rot and stink in our bureaucratic agencies and, and, and this insane deep state, because it really is a deep state, that we're being lied to about everything. Like we're being told a story that doesn't reflect what's really going on in this country and actually around the world. We just get sold bills of goods by the media who's being sold the bill of goods by whatever agencies involved, whether it's NIH or NIMH. Remind me of that movie, The Secret of NIM. Remember that with the little mouse? Uh, anyway. So I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon, if it be his will and he delays his coming. Remember what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us. So those are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And may God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.